Book Twelve, Part One of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book Twelve, A.D. Forty-eight to Fifty-four, Part One. Claudius's freedman choose his niece Agrippina as his wife. The destruction of Messalina shook the imperial house, for a strife arose among the freedmen who should choose a wife for Claudius, impatient as he was of a single life, and submissive to the rule of wives. The ladies were fired with no less jealousy. Each insisted on her rank, beauty, and fortune, and pointed to her claims to such a marriage— but the keenest competition was between Lollia Paulina, the daughter of Marcus Lollius, an ex-consul, and Julia Agrippina, the daughter of Germanicus. Callistus favoured the first, Pallas the second. Aelia Paetina, however, of the family of the Tuberones, had the support of Narcissus. The emperor, who inclined now one way, now another, as he listened to this or that adviser, summoned the disputants to a conference, and bade them express their opinions, and give their reasons. Narcissus dwelt on the marriage of years gone by, on the tie of offspring, for Pytina was the mother of Antonia, and on the advantage of excluding a new element from his household, by the return of a wife to whom he was accustomed, and who would assuredly not look with a stepmother's animosity on Britannicus and Octavia, who were next in her affections to her own children. Callistus argued that she was compromised by her long separation, and that were she to be taken back she would be supercilious on the strength of it. It would be far better to introduce Lollia, for, as she had no children of her own, she would be free from jealousy, and would take the place of a mother toward her stepchildren. Pallas again selected Agrippina for special commendation, because she would bring with her Germanicus's grandson, who was thoroughly worthy of imperial rank, the scion of a noble house, and a link to unite the descendants of the Claudian family. He hoped that a woman who was the mother of many children, and still in the freshness of youth, would not carry off the grandeur of the Caesars to some other house. This advice prevailed, backed up as it was by Agrippina's charms. On the pretext of her relationship she paid frequent visits to her uncle, and so won his heart that she was preferred to the others, and, though not yet his wife, already possessed a wife's power. For as soon as she was sure of her marriage, she began to aim at greater things, and planned an alliance between Domitius, her son by Cnaeus Aenobarbus, and Octavia, the emperor's daughter. This could not be accomplished without a crime, for the emperor had betrothed Octavia to Lucius Silanus, a young man otherwise famous, whom he had brought forward as a candidate for popular favour, by the honour of triumphal distinctions, and by a magnificent gladiatorial show. But no difficulty seemed to be presented by the temper of a sovereign who had neither partialities nor dislikes, but such as were suggested and dictated to him. Vitellius, accordingly, who used the name of censor to screen a slave's trickeries, and looked forward to new despotisms already impending, associated himself in Agrippina's plans, with a view to her favour, and began to bring charges against Silanus, whose sister, Junia Calvina, a handsome and lively girl, had shortly before become his daughter-in-law. Here was a starting-point for an accuser. 
Vitellius put an infamous construction on the somewhat incautious, though not criminal, love between the brother and sister. The emperor listened, for his affection for his daughter inclined him the more to admit suspicions against his son-in-law. Silanus, meanwhile, who knew nothing of the plot, and happened that year to be praetor, was suddenly expelled from the senate by an edict of Vitellius, though the role of senators had been recently reviewed and the lustrum closed. Claudius at the same time broke off the connection. Silanus was forced to resign his office, and the one remaining day of his praetorship was conferred on Eprius Marcellus. In the year of the consulship of Caius Pompeius and Quintus Veranius, the marriage arranged between Claudius and Agrippina was confirmed, both by popular rumour and by their own illicit love. Still, they did not yet dare to celebrate the nuptials in due form, for there was no precedent for the introduction of a niece into an uncle's house. It was positively incest, and if disregarded it would, people feared, issue in calamity to the state. These scruples ceased not till Vitellius undertook the management of the matter in his own way. He asked the emperor whether he would yield to the recommendations of the people and to the authority of the senate. When Claudius replied that he was one among the citizens and could not resist their unanimous voice, Vitellius requested him to wait in the palace, while he himself went to the senate. Protesting that the supreme interest of the commonwealth was at stake, he begged to be allowed to speak first, and then began to urge that the very burdensome labours of the emperor, in a world-wide administration, required assistance, so that, free from domestic cares, he might consult the public welfare. How, again, could there be a more virtuous relief for the mind of an imperial censor than the taking of a wife to share his prosperity and his troubles, to whom he might entrust his inmost thoughts and the care of his young children, unused as he was to luxury and pleasure, and wont from his earliest youth to obey the laws? Vitellius, having first put forward these arguments in a conciliatory speech, and met with decided acquiescence from the Senate, began afresh to point out that, as they all recommended the Emperor's marriage, they ought to select a lady conspicuous for noble rank and purity, herself too the mother of children. "'It cannot,' he said, "'be long a question that Agrippina stands first in nobility of birth. She has given proof, too, that she is not barren, and she has suitable moral qualities. It is again a singular advantage to us, due to divine providence, for a widow to be united to an emperor who has limited himself to his own lawful wives. We have heard from our fathers, we have ourselves seen that married women were seized at the caprice of the Caesars. This is quite alien to the propriety of our day. Rather let a precedent be now set for the taking of a wife by an emperor." But, it will be said, marriage with a brother's daughter is with us a novelty. True, but it is common in other countries, and there is no law to forbid it. Marriages of cousins were long unknown, but after a time they became frequent. Custom adapts itself to expediency, and this novelty will hereafter take its place among recognised usages." There were some who rushed out of the Senate, passionately protesting that if the Emperor hesitated they would use violence. A promiscuous throng assembled, and kept exclaiming that the same too was the prayer of the Roman people. Claudius, without further delay, presented himself in the Forum to their congratulations. Then entering the Senate he asked from them a decree which should decide that for the future 
marriages between uncles and brothers' daughters should be legal. There was, however, found only one person who desired such a marriage, Aladius Severus, a Roman knight, who, as many said, was swayed by the influence of Agrippina. Then came a revolution in the state, and everything was under the control of a woman, who did not, like Messalina, insult Rome by loose manners. It was a stringent and, so to say, masculine despotism. There was sternness and generally arrogance in public, no sort of immodesty at home, unless it conduced to power. A boundless greed of wealth was veiled under the pretext that riches were being accumulated as a prop to the throne. On the day of the marriage, Silanus committed suicide, having up to that time prolonged his hope of life, or else choosing that day to heighten the popular indignation. His sister Calvina was banished from Italy. Claudius further added that sacrifices after the ordinances of King Tullius and atonements were to be offered by the pontiffs in the grove of Diana, amid general ridicule at the idea devising penalties and propitiations for incest at such a time. Agrippina, that she might not be conspicuous only by her evil deeds, procured for Aeneas Seneca a remission of his exile, and with it the praetorship. She thought this would be universally welcome, from the celebrity of his attainments, and it was her wish too for the boyhood of Domitius to be trained under so excellent an instructor, and for them to have the benefit of his counsels in their designs on the throne. For Seneca, it was believed, was devoted to Agrippina from a remembrance of her kindness, and an enemy to Claudius from a bitter sense of wrong. It was then resolved to delay no longer. Memmius Pollio, the consul-elect, was induced by great promises to deliver a speech, praying Claudius to betroth Octavia to Domitius. The match was not unsuitable to the age of either, and was likely to develop still more important results. Pollio introduced the motion in much the same language as Vitellius had lately used. So Octavia was betrothed, and Domitius, besides his previous relationship, became now the emperor's affianced son-in-law, and an equal of Britannicus, through the exertions of his mother, and the cunning of those who had been the accusers of Messalina, and feared the vengeance of her son. About the same time, an embassy from the Parthians, which had been sent, as I have stated, to solicit the return of Mehedates, was introduced into the Senate, and delivered a message to the following effect. They were not, they said, unaware of the Treaty of Alliance, nor did their coming imply any revolt from the family of the Arzakids. Indeed, even the son of Vonones, Phraates' grandson, was with them in their resistance to the despotism of Gotazes, which was alike intolerable to the nobility and to the people. Already brothers, relatives, and distant kin had been swept off by murder after murder. Wives actually pregnant and tender children were added to Gotazes' victims, while slothful at home and unsuccessful in war, he made cruelty a screen for his feebleness. Between the Parthians and ourselves there was an ancient friendship founded on a state alliance, and we ought to support allies who were our rivals in strength, and yet yielded to us out of respect. King's sons were given as hostages, in order that when Parthia was tired of home rule, it might fall back on the emperor and the senate, and receive from them a better sovereign, familiar with Roman habits. In answer to these and like arguments, 
Claudius began to speak of the grandeur of Rome and the submissive attitude of the Parthians. He compared himself to the divine Augustus, from whom, he reminded them, they had sought a king, but omitted to mention Tiberius, though he too had sent them sovereigns. He added some advice for Mehedates, who was present, and told him not to be thinking of a despot and his slaves, but rather of a ruler among fellow-citizens, and to practice clemency and justice, which barbarians would like the more for being unused to them. Then he turned to the envoys and bestowed high praise on the young foster-son of Rome, as one whose self-control had hitherto been exemplary. Still, he said, they must bear with the caprices of kings, and frequent revolutions were bad. Rome, sated with her glory, had reached such a height that she wished even foreign nations to enjoy repose. Upon this Caius Cassius, governor of Syria, was commissioned to escort the young prince to the bank of the Euphrates. Cassius was at that time pre-eminent for legal learning. The profession of the soldier is forgotten in a quiet period, and peace reduces the enterprising and indolent to an equality. But Cassius, as far as it was possible without war, revived ancient discipline, kept exercising the legions, in short used as much diligence and precaution as if an enemy were threatening him. This conduct he counted worthy of his ancestors, and of the Cassian family which had won renown even in those countries. He then summoned those at whose suggestion a king had been sought from Rome, and, having encamped at Zoigma, where the river was most easily fordable, and awaited the arrival of the chief men of Parthia, and of Akbarus, king of the Arabs, he reminded Mehadates that the impulsive enthusiasm of barbarians soon flags from delay, or even changes into treachery, and that therefore he should urge on his enterprise. The advice was disregarded through the perfidy of Akbarus, by whom the foolish young prince, who thought that the highest position merely meant self-indulgence, was detained for several days in the town of Edessa. Although a certain Carenes pressed them to come, and promised easy success if they hastened their arrival, they did not make for Mesopotamia, which was close to them, but by a long detour for Armenia, then ill-suited to their movements, as winter was beginning. As they approached the plains, wearied with the snows and mountains, they were joined by the forces of Carenes, and having crossed the river Tigris, they traversed the country of the Adiabeni, whose king Izates had avowedly embraced the alliance of Mehadates, though secretly and in better faith he inclined to Gotazes. In their march they captured the city of Ninos, the most ancient capital of Assyria, and a fortress historically famous as the spot where at the last battle between Darius and Alexander the power of Persia fell. Gotazes, meanwhile, was offering vows to the local divinities on a mountain called Sambulos, with special worship of Hercules, who at a stated time bids the priests in a dream equip horses for the chase and place them near his temple. When the horses have been laden with quivers full of arrows, they scour the forest and at length return at night, with empty quivers, panting violently. Again the god in a vision of the night reveals to them the track along which he roamed through the woods, and everywhere slaughtered beasts are found. Gotazes, his army not being yet in sufficient force, made the river Korma a line of defence, and though he was challenged to an engagement by taunting messages, he contrived delays, 
shifted his positions and sent emissaries to corrupt the enemy and bribe them to throw off their allegiance. Izates of the Adiabeni, and then Akbaras of the Arabs, deserted with their troops, with their countrymen's characteristic fickleness, confirming previous experience that barbarians prefer to seek a king from Rome than to keep him. Mehadates, stripped of his powerful auxiliaries and suspecting treachery in the rest, resolved as his last resource to risk everything and try the issue of a battle. Nor did Gotazes, who was emboldened by the enemy's diminished strength, refuse the challenge. They fought with terrible courage and doubtful result, till Carenes, who, having beaten down all resistance, had advanced too far, was surprised by a fresh detachment in his rear. Then Mehadates, in despair, yielded to promises from Parachis, one of his father's adherents, and was by his treachery delivered in chains to the conqueror. Gotazes taunted him with being no kinsman of his or of the Arzakids, but a foreigner and a Roman, and, having cut off his ears, bade him live a memorial of his own clemency and a disgrace to us. After this, Gotazes fell ill and died, and Vonones, who then ruled the Medes, was summoned to the throne. He was memorable neither for his good nor bad fortune. He completed a short and inglorious reign, and then the empire of Parthia passed to his son, Vologeses. Mithridates of Bosporus, meanwhile, who had lost his power and was a mere outcast, on learning that the Roman general Didius and the main strength of his army had retired, and that Cotis, a young prince without experience, was left in his new kingdom with a few cohorts under Julius Aquila, a Roman knight, disdaining both, roused the neighbouring tribes and drew deserters to his standard. At last he collected an army, drove out the king of the Dandaridae, and possessed himself of his dominions. When this was known, and the invasion of Bosporus was every moment expected, Aquila and Cotis, seeing that hostilities had been also resumed by Zorsines, king of the Syraci, distrusted their own strength, and themselves too sought the friendship of the foreigner by sending envoys to Eunones, who was then chief of the Adorsi. There was no difficulty about alliance, when they pointed to the power of Rome in contrast with the rebel Mithridates, it was accordingly stipulated that Eunones should engage the enemy with his cavalry, and the Romans undertake the siege of towns. Then the army advanced in regular formation, the Adorsi in the van and the rear, while the centre was strengthened by the cohorts and native troops of Bosporus with Roman arms. Thus the enemy was defeated, and they reached Sosa, a town in Dandarica, which Mithridates had abandoned, where it was thought expedient to leave a garrison, as the temper of the people was uncertain. Next they marched on the Syraci, and after crossing the river Panda, besieged the city of Uspe, which stood on high ground, and had the defence of wall and fosses, only the walls not being of stone, but of hurdles and wickerwork with earth between, were too weak to resist an assault. Towers were raised to a greater height, as a means of annoying the besieged with brands and darts. Had not night stopped the conflict, the siege would have begun and finished within one day. Next day they sent an embassy, asking mercy for the freeborn and offering ten thousand slaves. 
as it would have been inhuman to slay the prisoners, and very difficult to keep them under guard, the conquerors rejected the offer, preferring that they should perish by the just doom of war. The signal for massacre was therefore given to the soldiers, who had mounted the walls by scaling ladders. The destruction of Uspe struck terror into the rest of the people, who thought safety impossible when they saw how armies and ramparts, heights and difficult positions, rivers and cities alike yielded to their foe. And so Zosines, having long considered whether he should still have regard to the fallen fortunes of Mithridates or to the kingdom of his fathers, and having at last preferred his country's interests, gave hostages and prostrated himself before the emperor's image, to the great glory of the Roman army, which all men knew to have come after a bloodless victory within three days' march of the river Tanais. In their return, however, fortune was not equally favourable. Some of their vessels, as they were sailing back, were driven on the shores of the Tauri, and cut off by the barbarians, who slew the commander of a cohort and several centurions. Meanwhile Mithridates, finding arms an unavailing resource, considered on whose mercy he was to throw himself. He feared his brother Cotis, who had once been a traitor, then become his open enemy. No Roman was on the spot of authority sufficient to make his promises highly valued. So he turned to Eunones, who had no personal animosity against him, and had been lately strengthened by his alliance with us. Adapting his dress and expression of countenance as much as possible to his present condition, he entered the palace, and throwing himself at the feet of Eunones, he exclaimed, Mithridates, whom the Romans have sought so many years by land and sea, stands before you by his own choice. Deal as you please with the descendant of the great Achaemenes, the only glory of which enemies have not robbed me. The great name of Mithridates, his reverse, his prayer full of dignity, deeply affected Eunones. He raised the suppliant, and commended him for having chosen the nation of the Adorsi and his own good faith in suing for mercy. He sent at the same time envoys to Caesar, with a letter to this effect, that friendship between emperors of Rome and sovereigns of powerful peoples was primarily based on a similarity of fortune, and that between himself and Claudius there was the tie of a common victory. Wars had glorious endings whenever matters were settled by an amnesty. The conquered Zorsines had on this principle been deprived of nothing. For Mithridates, as he deserved heavier punishment, he asked neither power nor dominions, only that he might not be led in triumph and pay the penalty of death. Claudius, though merciful to foreign princes, was yet in doubt whether it were better to receive the captive with the promise of safety, or to claim his surrender by the sword. To this last he was urged by resentment at his wrongs, and by thirst for vengeance. On the other hand, it was argued that it would be undertaking a war in a country without roads, on a harbourless sea, against warlike kings and wandering tribes, on a barren soil that a weary disgust would come of tardy movements and perils of precipitancy, that the glory of victory would be small, while much disgrace would ensue on defeat. Why should not the emperor seize the offer and spare the exile, whose punishment would be the greater the longer he lived in poverty? 
Moved by these considerations, Claudius wrote to Eunones that Mithridates had certainly merited an extreme and exemplary penalty, which he was not wanting in power to inflict, but it had been the principle of his ancestors to show as much forbearance to a suppliant as they showed persistence against a foe. As for triumphs, they were won over nations and kings hitherto unconquered. After this, Mithridates was given up, and brought to Rome by Junius Chilo, the procurator of Pontus. There, in the emperor's presence, he was said to have spoken too proudly for his position, and words uttered by him to the following effect became the popular talk. "'I have not been sent, but have come back to you. If you do not believe me, let me go and pursue me.' He stood too with fearless countenance when he was exposed to the people's gaze near the rostra under military guard. To Chilo and Aquila were voted, respectively, the consular and praetorian decorations. In the same consulship, Agrippina, who was terrible in her hatred and detested Lollia for having competed with her for the emperor's hand, planned an accusation through an informer who was to tax her with having consulted astrologers and magicians and the image of the Clarian Apollo about the imperial marriage. Upon this, Claudius, without hearing the accused, first reminded the senate of her illustrious rank that the sister of Lucius Volusius was her mother, Cotta Messalinus her grand-uncle, Memmius Regulus formerly her husband, for of her marriage to Caius Caesar he purposely said nothing, and then added that she had mischievous designs on the state, and must have the means of crime taken from her. Consequently her property should be confiscated, and she herself banished from Italy. Thus, out of immense wealth, only five million sesterces were left to the exile. Calpurnia, too, a lady of high rank, was ruined, simply because the emperor had praised her beauty in a casual remark, without any passion for her. And so Agrippina's resentment stopped short of extreme vengeance. A tribune was dispatched to Lollia, who was to force her to suicide. Next, on the prosecution of the Bithynians, Cadius Rufus was condemned under the law against extortion. Narbonne Gaul, for its special reverence of the Senate, received a privilege. Senators belonging to the province, without seeking the emperor's approval, were to be allowed to visit their estates, a right enjoyed by Sicily. Iturea and Judea, on the death of their kings, Sohamus and Agrippa, were annexed to the province of Syria. It was also decided that the augury of the public safety, which for twenty-five years had been neglected, should be revived and henceforth observed. The emperor likewise widened the sacred precincts of the capital, in conformity with the ancient usage, according to which those who had enlarged the empire were permitted also to extend the boundaries of Rome. But Roman generals, even after the conquest of great nations, had never exercised this right, except Lucius Sulla, and the divine Augustus. There are various popular accounts of the ambitious and vainglorious efforts of our kings in this matter. Still, I think it is interesting to know accurately the original plan of the precinct, as it was fixed by Romulus. From the ox market, where we see the brazen statue of a bull, because that animal is yoked to the plough, a furrow was drawn to mark out the town, so as to embrace the great altar of Hercules. Then, at regular intervals, stones were placed along the foot of the Palatine Hill to the altar of Consus, soon afterwards to the old courts, and then to the chapel of Larunda, 
the Roman Forum and the Capitol, were not, it was supposed, added to the city by Romulus, but by Titus Tatius. In time the precinct was enlarged with the growth of Rome's fortunes. The boundaries now fixed by Claudius may be easily recognised, as they are specified in the public records. End of Book 12, Part 1